Well, we are in Romans 8. Um, we're just going to cover a few verses this morning. Um, because, Well, Romans as a whole is dense, but it, this chapter especially um, has a lot going on. And we don't want to move too quickly or we'll miss, I think, some important stuff. So, um, I'll just start off by saying this, and that is that uh, our lives are full of uncertainty. Um, there's so many things that go on. Uh, we, we feel like we have control um, until something upends itself, and then we realize very quickly that we um, are completely out of control. Uh, this week, working at the hospital with, I mean, two shootings in a week in our little town, like it's just, and seeing the, you know, sort of the fear and the, the, um, the pain and the suffering in, in parents' lives of kids who had been, you know, had been wounded, and just like seeing that they, they're trying, they're grasping out for some kind of control. They want to know what's going to happen, but there's, there's no answers. And so this is the world we live in. Um, on a wider scale, right, we, there's wars being fought across the world. And we might think, well, you know, this is, they're small and they're in these little areas and small countries and it's not, um, you know, it's not going to expand. We, we think we know what's going to happen and we think we know that we have control and we don't. Uh, before World War I was called World War I, it was called the war to what? To end all wars. That's what the world thought after the war was over, right? And it wasn't that long that we have World War II and that we have continued war and conflict. And so we live in this world where we, we don't have control, there is uncertainty. And this is not just true on this wide scale, but it is true for each one of us individually, right? A new job, a new home, a new baby a new neighbor, there's all kinds of things that can sort of upend what we understand and what we know to be our norm, our reality, and our futures. They're unknown to us. We talked about this a lot back last winter when we were in Ecclesiastes, right? This, there's a crooked path that God has set in front of us, and we have no idea where it's going to turn, and we have no idea if it's going to be steep and hard or if it's going to be flat and easy, and we just we live a life where God is in control and we are not. And there's chaos in our world, in our lives. We might try and ignore it, but it's there. We know that it's there. And so if you are sufficiently now sort of downtrodden and depressed a little bit, we have then in Romans 8 one of the best promises that we have, I think, in all of Scripture. You see, we live in a world of chaos, but we serve a God who has given us a promise where we will never, ever be condemned ever again. No matter what else is happening in your life, no matter how chaotic it is, no matter how out of control you feel, you can stand on this promise, which should bring you comfort beyond any struggle that you're dealing with. And that is that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who trust in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul wants to communicate in all of chapter 8. And he's going, to, he's going to explain it a little bit at a time. Like, that's what the rest of the verses are doing. They're expounding on this idea that is foundation to the Christian faith. It is foundation to our understanding of what it means to follow God. Is that we can never, ever be condemned again. When we place our faith and our trust in Christ for salvation, we are never condemned ever again. I'm sure that this verse is not unique to you. I'm sure that it is not new to you. This is one that you have heard over and over again. But 
I, I suspect, and is that when we hear these verses that we've heard time and time again, that we really don't take time to let the truth of it settle on us. We don't take time to let it sink in. Hear it again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now there are some questions I think that come up when we read this verse and we think about this idea. Who are the ones who are no longer being condemned? Well, it's those who are in Christ. But is this verse saying to us that there is not a time in the future where we won't be in Christ? Can we be in Christ today and tomorrow not be in Christ? That's a question that many people have asked throughout all of church history, trying to decide this idea, is our salvation secure or can we be saved? Can we confess and repent, but that salvation go away depending on our level of obedience? Is our salvation secure for an eternity or is it based on us? Well, let's hear directly from Jesus on this one. Um, John chapter 10 22 to 30. I think this one will be familiar to you as well. John 10, 22 to 30 says this. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. And it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. To the ones whom Christ gives eternal life, they will never perish. That is what Jesus says. It's as plain as day, right? This is a passage that we've, once again, you've probably heard this multiple times. No one can snatch them out of, out of the hand of Christ, out of the hand of the Father. So this state of no condemnation is true, and it's true forever. And this is hard for us to believe. This is hard for us to, to grasp hold of. Because we say to ourselves, well, what if I do such and such? But what if I, what if I lose myself and I, and I sin in this way or I do this or I commit this sin? What about that? Or what about this? And we want to come up with all these scenarios and think, what, what if this? I better, I better resist all sin so that my salvation will stay secure. Thinking that we are the ones who are maintaining the work that Christ did in us. And I think the 
When we think in those terms, I think we miss the point of how salvation comes about in the first place. I don't know if you noticed what Jesus says here, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. You see, oftentimes we think that we will lose our salvation because we believe we did something to earn it or that we did something to gain it. And see, if you think that way, then it will lead you to a place where you think, if I did something to earn it, if I did something to gain it, even if I accepted Christ, that's the thing that I did then there is, there is this chance that it can be taken away based off of what I do in the future. But Jesus says very clearly, those who don't believe, they don't believe because they are not part of Jesus' sheep. They are not a part of his flock. He hasn't chosen them to be in there. There is no hint of human reaction, of humans doing anything in this passage. Jesus is doing everything. He brings them into the fold. He gives them salvation. There is nothing about people saying, well, I'm going to choose to accept that or reject that. That is not what I believe the Bible teaches. And when we think that way, that's where I think it leads us to the point where we say, I think then if I'm the one who accepted it, then I'm the one who can reject it later. Jesus did it all. He chose you. He gave you this belief. He gave you this salvation. And when we understand that, we understand why when we read in Romans 8 that there is no condemnation for anybody. It doesn't matter what you do or what you don't do. It's about Jesus sustaining you. It is about God keeping your faith alive. If it were up to you, if you could lose your salvation, you would have lost it already. Many times over. Vody says you would lose it every day and twice on Sunday, right? That's, that's the state of our heart. Even after we have the Holy Spirit, even after we believe in Jesus, we would reject God on a regular basis. We do. We sin. We know what is true and we don't follow it. There is no condemnation because it's not up to you. If it were up to you, the condemnation would come. But it's up to Christ. He is the one who sustains you. So our status as forgiven, as a forgiven child of God, it's the same as, the, as, our, as our status in sanctification. God has declared it to be so. He declares not only that you were justified at the moment of conversion and salvation, but that you are continually, continually justified. That today you are justified, not because you did something, but because God declared it to be true. So I encourage you, I challenge you, Stop putting yourself in the mix. Stop thinking, well, I'm only going to escape condemnation if I can uphold to the laws of God. That is not what the Bible teaches. It is 100% God. It is 100% without any input from us. God is doing all of it. Now, my, my boss at the hospital, one of, one of the chaplains, it's his favorite statement He says, let's name the elephant in the room. He does this all the time. Every time we meet together, he says, there's this elephant in the room. We're all sort of circling around it. We don't want to talk about it, but why don't we name it? And I'm going to name something for you this morning. And that's this, that I've been here serving 
as a fill-in pastor and then as the interim for almost a year now, right? Since last December, um, I've been here almost every week, you know, week in, week out, coming to preach. Um, and regularly, I have people come up to me, sometimes multiple weeks in a row, I have people come up to me and ask me, um, what, what are you going to do? Are you, you going to stick around? You, you want to stay here long term? Are you like, whenever there's a, there's the time for the pastor search, like, are you going to put your name in into that? And that's the question I get asked quite often. Um, and I want to, I want to, to sort of turn that on its head because I don't think that's the right question right now. I think the right question is, what does the church want me to stay? Before I answer whether I want to stay or not, I think that question is the thing that needs to be asked. And, and the only reason I bring this up is because, so for, for these last, however, six, eight months, um, I have been being, I just been being, I, I've been trying to be very careful because there's a lot, there was a lot of chaos going on. There's a lot of pain and hurt in the church in the last, you know, 18 months roughly. And so bringing up like this, this that I just talked about, this idea that God is saving people and that we have absolutely no say in that. I want you to know, like, that's, that's what I believe unapologetically about salvation. Like, I do not believe that people have a choice. I do not believe that people can reject God, that a choice is placed in front of you, and you're going to say one way or the other. Like, that's not where I stand. I stand on God chooses some, he elects some, and he saves them. And he doesn't ask their opinion. He doesn't ask their permission, he just does it. That's what I believe the Bible teaches. And I bring this up because here's the thing. Does the church want that? And I, I don't know. I don't know where this church, I don't know if that's what you want to hear on a regular basis preaching, but that, that's where I stand. And so I bring this up because I don't want there to be any like surprises. I don't want there to be a time when you're like, oh, he's been here for so long and let's, let's ask him to stay. And then I start doing that. And you're like, wait a minute. That's not the guy I thought he was. That's not what I thought he believed. That's not how I thought he preached. Um, and so even like what, with what happened last week. That's something that I hold dear in my heart, that on a regular basis, I would want to stand in this pulpit and read a book of the Bible and not preach. I don't know how many of you were blessed by that. Maybe some of you like got lost after chapter two and then you were just like, I don't know what this guy's talking about. I mean, it was funny. We were talking to house church and, and some people sort of missed the beginning and we're like not, not understanding that I was going to read the whole thing. And they're like, when's this guy going to stop reading? And like, start, you know, but that's something I hold dear to me. That's, that's something I would want to do on a regular basis. So I want to start showing you who, who I am and some of these things that are a little bit more controversial because that's the question I think over the next however many months the church should be asking itself. Um, and, and I just want to be clear too, you know, this has not been a conversation in the leadership group or, or like the prospective elders. They have not come to me and asked me to do this. It's just, I just want you to know. Like people, a lot of people ask me on a regular basis, do I want to stay? Do I want to stay? This is part of what I believe. And this is part of where my conviction lies. That when I read Romans 8, 1, the reason that I understand that no matter what I do, that even if I went out and killed somebody or committed adultery, that there is no condemnation for me because it's not about me. It's not about what I do or what I don't do. It's about God sustaining me. God saved me without asking my permission and he sustains me without asking my permission. That's what he's doing. That's the work in which he is working in my life and in your life. And I know that not everybody agrees with that. And I know that you might think that and like, well, then I don't want you to say. And that's okay. I wouldn't take that personally at all. There are lots of people I meet over the, over the years who, who don't like this idea of denominations. I don't know about you, but I love them. 
I love the fact that I know that when I go down the road and I see a certain denomination on a church, but I love the Presbyterians. I love them, but I'm not going to go there. I, I, I believe in, be, in believers' baptism. I'm not going where they baptize babies. It's not happening. I, I believe in certain things. I mean, I, I'm not going to keep picking on churches, but like, I'm not going to go to a church where they require baptism, right? I'm not going to go to a church where they require that you speak in tongues or where they require this. I will consider them my brother and sister in Christ all day long. But there are certain places that I would like to go and worship, and there are certain places that I would, I would not choose to worship in. And if this church has made a decision, we don't, we don't want to bring in a pastor who believes that strongly in this idea of predestination. I just, I say this because I want you to know where I stand unapologetically, without question. That is my conviction. That is what I believe. That is what I will preach if the day comes. If, 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 big if, right? If, if the elder candidates, if they ask me, I want you to know where I come from. I want you to know where I stand. And so that was a little rabbit I thought worth chasing, right? Um, I think it's important that you get, that I start exposing a little bit more of who I am and what I believe to you guys. Because the day is coming. Fairly soon, right? I don't know. Next three, four, five. I don't know how many months. But there is a day coming where you guys are going to be looking for a full-time guy, right? Somebody who's here for the long haul for years and years and years to come. Um, and so I just want you to know who I am um, so that you as the church can answer that question. Okay. Next thing. The law of the spirit of life has set you free. This is what we see in verse 2, right? So the first statement is going to be explained in, in more, uh, more fully as we go. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So verse 1 is our statement. This is beginning then to explain it more fully. So Paul tells us, look, there's, there's actually... There's, There's a new law, and it's the law of the spirit of life. And it has set us free from the law of sin and death. Now we ask, okay, is this a replacement? Is the Holy Spirit replacing the Old Testament law? Now, if that were true, you could just, like, take a razor, go from Malachi back and just cut all that out and throw it away. That's not what we do. We understand that's not the right mentality. So what's happening? If If the Holy Spirit is not replacing the Old Testament law in our life, what is happening It has set us free from it. What aspect of it was it it controlling us? Are we now free from the Old Testament law completely in the sense of are we, should we be obedient to it? Well, the answer is, of course, we should be obedient to it, right? This is God's law. And we, I don't necessarily want to get into the discussion of like the dietary law versus the moral law. Like there are certain things in the Old Testament. I mean, go, go have some shellfish later today. It's fine. Like eat a pig. It's okay. Right? Because we understand that the, the, the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament were to try and set apart Israel as a physical nation to witness to the world. I think I've mentioned this before, but if you ever look at a map and you think about what, where the dynasties were in that part of, in that part of the world at that time, where is Israel? It's like between some of the major, like biggest dynasties that exist. When Egypt needs to go to Syria, what do they do? They travel through Israel, this little bitty strip of a country. Same, vice versa, right? I mean, Egypt is one of the powerhouses of the world when Israel is established. What do they do? And can you imagine? The people are walking through, and they're meeting Jewish families, and the Jewish families are welcoming them into their home, and they're being hospitable, and they're being kind, and they're being loving, and the Egyptians would say, what is this? Who are you people? 
Like we kill people when we see weakness. And here you are being kind to us, loving. And then they can say, this is the God whom we serve. Let me introduce him to you. Like it was part of their witness. They were set apart to witness to the world, right? Israel wasn't just hunkered in on itself, caring only about itself. Its job was to bless the entire world. That is the promise that God gives to Abraham. That is the job of Israel, to bless the planet, everyone that they meet. And so they're being set apart. So there's some laws, like the cleanliness laws, about what you should and shouldn't eat. I mean, Paul tells us that all things are clean to eat. But when we look at the Ten Commandments, we those those are still in our wheelhouse, right? Those are things that we should be trying to be obedient to all of the time. Why is that? If we're set apart from it, if we're forgiven, if there is no condemnation, then why are we trying to follow any law? Why does it matter? If we're not being condemned, if nothing we do can separate us from the love of God, right? This is what Tyler read at the end of this chapter that we'll get to, I don't know, in a month probably. I mean, it's a, it's a lot, right? There's a lot here. It's going to be a lot, but we're going to get there, right? Why should we care? Why? Why? What is the point of the law? What is the motivation behind trying to be obedient to God? It brings him glory. And not only that, it's good for you. I'm sure that you have all known somebody, known a marriage, and watched it completely deteriorate because of adultery. Adultery is not, God didn't just say don't commit adultery so that, just to stop you from doing something that you think might be good and fun. He is trying to stop you from destroying your life and your marriage and your family. It is a good and holy rule that we follow, not so that we can be righteous, but so that we can bring glory to God. So that our life will be more filled with joy and more filled with praise to God. So this law is not replacing the old. This law, the spirit of life, is not. It, it has set us free from being condemned by the law, but it has not set us free from wanting to be obedient to it. There's a big difference. It's not a replacement, but it is a fulfillment of it. And then we see in verse 3, this new spirit of life is possible because of the work of Christ. So we are no longer bound by the law, right? We, are no, we have been set free in verse 2, and it has only come about <coughs> because of the work of Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is this? We are set free from the law of sin and death through Christ. Now, if you were set free from it, how could it ever condemn you? Now, in chapters previous to this, right, Paul has explained in great detail what is our relationship with the law. What does it do for us? What are we supposed to, how are we supposed to view it? How do we understand it? We know that we're not to ignore it. We know that the law is good. We know that the law is holy. But now Christ has fulfilled it completely and we are no longer bound to it. I tried and tried and tried to come up with some sort of like real world example. To, I, I don't know. This is a bad one. It, it breaks down in like a hundred places, but it may help. If it helps you, great. If it doesn't, 
C.S. Lewis used to write this all the time. Like, if this helps you, keep it. If it doesn't, throw it away, right? It, think about if you're at work and you have a contract, right, with a client. And, they, and let's say that they're just a really, like, fundamental, I don't know, Amish group, right? And they say, hey, look, in our dealings with one another, in, the, in these negotiations, we require that you guys do not use any foul language. Like, that, that is really, like, it, it, it really upsets us. So no matter what happens, no matter how frustrated or angry either side gets, we do not want to hear any curse words. If you do that, we're up, we're out, we're gone. So you, your boss comes to you, like, here it is, here's the rule. You know, normally that's not a rule in where you work, but, like, let's say that that's what's happening, right? You do this thing, right? You, you make the deal, you go about it, and you find that in that process... Not being able to curse, not being able to express your anger in that way, it actually was helpful to you. And so even after that contract is over, even though you're no longer bound by it, you say, you know what, I'm going to keep doing that as the future goes forward because this was good. It was beneficial for me. It was something that was helpful to me. So I'm going to keep doing it. I'm not bound by it anymore, but I find it to be a good rule and I'm going to keep on doing it. Once again, it, it's not perfect, but it, it helps me to understand what is this, this relationship that I have with the Old Testament law. It's not causing me condemnation if I disobey it, but it is God's law, and it is holy, and it is good. And we want to follow it. But in theory, if you never obey it again, if you believe in Jesus, but you never obey God's law ever again... By theory, you will still never be condemned, right? Because it cannot do that. In your salvation, you can't be condemned, no matter what you do, no matter what you don't do, right? That is the state in which God has declared us to be in. Now, if you look at the book of James, this gets a little confusing, because James talks a lot about works. And in fact, he says, a person who who says that they have faith but has no works, I, I don't believe them. But even James understands that our, our works are a product of the faith that we have. Our works are not what save us. And so when we love Jesus, we want to obey his commandments. But if we never do, we cannot be condemned. But then here's where it gets more complicated. I mean, in case you hadn't noticed, the Christian life is complicated. There's a lot of things working together at the same time. All these moving parts that we're trying to figure out. Like, how is this true at the same time that this is true? It seems like they're at odds with one another. What do we do? Like, James tells us that faith without works is dead. So how do we understand then that there is no condemnation no matter what we do? We're not bound by the law for our salvation. But if we never have fruits of the Spirit... If we are never obedient to God's law and if we are never striving to be like Jesus, you can tell me you're a Christian all day long and I don't, I won't believe it. If you have no fruit of the faith that you say that you have, I, I I can't believe that, right? Because faith will produce works in you. That's the message of James. Not that you have to have works in order to be saved, but that when your faith is real and legitimate and true, it will produce in you good works. The fruits of the Spirit will come out in you. Now, there may be times when, when the fruits are not as abundant as they are at other times, right? We go through these peaks and valleys, and there are times in our life when we feel like we are more obedient than other times. But that none of that determines whether you are still a Christian or not, or whether God still loves you or not, or it doesn't determine the relationship you have with God. God set those things in stone. You are saved. 
You are no longer condemned. You are a child of God. You are one of His chosen people, regardless of what you do. But we still strive towards obedience. True Christians are never condemned. And I want to, I keep saying this, and you might, you might get a little like, it might make you a little uncomfortable. What do you mean no matter what I do? How many of the Old Testament people that we hold up on a pedestal and we say, man, this guy, like, look at the faith of Abraham, who also sold his wife two different times. Look at the faith of Noah, who after the flood got so drunk that he passed out naked in, for the whole world to see. Look at the faith of David, who committed adultery and probably by our current definition, rape, and murder, secondary, second-hand murder, right, by the killing of, of Bathsheba's husband. Look at Moses, who led the people out of Israel, who actually firsthand killed, murdered somebody. I expect to see those men in heaven, not because of the good, all the good that they have done, but because God imparted faith to them, that they were not condemned because God declared them righteous. You see... This is not a freedom to go and do all of these things, but it is, I want to challenge you to change your thinking about this. If you have been thinking your whole life as a Christian, my relationship with the Lord uh, today and tomorrow, it's all dependent on how obedient I am. How, How close can I be with the Lord that is dependent upon if I am being obedient or not. And none of it is dependent upon you and the things that you do. It's all dependent on God who has declared us Righteous, who has declared us holy. And now we get into sort of another layer here, another facet of what's going on. This is the second half of verse 3. We'll just read verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son into the light, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Um, seems like I've been talking about how God is not condemning us. And then we have this statement that Jesus has come in order to condemn it, in order to condemn sin in the flesh. So what in the world is going on here? Christ comes. He comes in the likeness of man, right? He comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. For sin, so that he can condemn it. And why would he come in order to condemn it? Because we serve a God who is fully and 100% just. We don't serve a God who looked down upon you and said, eh, you've done some dumb stuff, but so is everybody. It's fine. Let's just, we'll forget about that. We'll just push that to the side. You're doing a pretty good job, so I'm going to let you into heaven. You didn't do any of the big three, right? You didn't steal. You didn't rob a bank or murder anybody or you know, cheat on your wife. Therefore, I'll let you in the back door. Just don't tell anybody. That's not how God operates. He is 100% just. Jesus comes down to earth to make sure that people know that God condemns all of the sins that we have committed. That somebody has to pay the price for them. That they are not going to be forgotten. They're not going to be pushed to the side. But every sin you and I and every other Christian has ever committed 
is laid on Jesus. The smallest one, even a half, a tenth of a second thought process that you had that was sinful, that got laid on Jesus, right? Nothing squeaked by. Nothing went under the rug or slipped through the crack. None of that, right? Every sin we have ever committed is laid on the shoulders of Jesus. He comes to make sure that we know that we serve a God who is just. And that we deserve to die for all of the things that we have done wrong. He condemns sin. And this is really important. We as the church have been tasked, I think, in a very similar thing. How many churches do you know of in our little community, right, Bayfield, Durango, Ignatius, this area, right, where we live, who, is, who are backing away from this. Well, the Bible's pretty clear about homosexual marriage, but we're going to, we're going to, the world seems to think that it's okay, so I guess we better change. We, we must be outdated. We must not, we must be wrong about this. We're going to, we're just going to pull off of that. We're not, we're not going to talk about that anymore. We're going to allow it. Right, and that's kind of how it starts. Like, ah, we're not going to talk about it. And like, well, we'll we'll allow it. And, and then, it, I mean, it progresses right to the point where there are churches in our world who claim the name of Jesus, who not only just are okay with it, they approve it, they encourage things that the Bible and God Himself calls sinful and abhorrent and evil. There's lots of examples of this, right? Not just this, but lots and lots of things where the church has said, "Eh, it's okay. We're going to allow these things." Jesus comes to condemn sin. He does it lovingly, right? He's not running around busting people in the head with a club or anything. He's loving, he's having conversations. But even the non-Christian, even the Greeks, right? He goes to them and he, and, and he tells them, right? The, the woman who, um, the, the adulterous woman who they're going to stone, what does he say to her? You're forgiven and go and sin no more. This is what he, he doesn't just give everybody a big hug and say it's all going to be okay. But he condemns the sin in people's lives. And this is important that we understand. And this is where we as the church should stand. Everybody who comes through that door, we should give them a hug and we should love them. And as we get to know them, if we know and we understand that there are sins in their lives, in a loving and gentle way, we should say, you should not be doing that. God condemns it. We as the church condemn it. I as your friend and your brother in Christ, I condemn this. Let me help you work out of this. Let me help you get away from these things. It's not pleasing to God. It's not glorifying to God. But we live in a world and in a culture where this is rarely happening. Jesus comes and he condemns the sin. But with that statement, right? With the idea of condemning sin, we are also doing something else. And that is what he says here in verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What did Jesus do? And what did He accomplish when He came? The righteous law was fulfilled in you and I. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of the work of Christ. He was perfect. And He gives that perfection to us. You see, we don't just come and condemn sin. We condemn it, and then we tell the world, there is a way for you to be saved, and His name is Jesus. 
He lived a perfect life in a way that you could never do. He has been perfect. He fulfilled the law perfectly. All the things that you do against God's law in the Old Testament, Christ fulfilled them and he lived that out perfectly. And he, is in, he will give you his righteousness. We condemn the sin and then we tell them the good news of the gospel. So those here this morning who believe, who are trusting in Christ, this is another promise from these verses that we no longer walk in the flesh, but we walk in the Spirit. This is another part of the status of being a child of God. How often do you hear the lie coming into your head that when you make a mistake, that when you sin, oh, I must be today, in this moment, I must be in the flesh. I must be walking in the flesh. I've disconnected from the Spirit. I'm not walking in the Spirit. In these moments, I'm walking in the flesh. And I better get back to this walking in the Spirit if I'm going to have any hope of being obedient to God. This is not how the Bible describes our everyday in and out walking with God. That we are, wa- we are walking in the Spirit all of the time. 100%, 24-7. Even when you're in sin. We, looked at, we, we saw this a couple of weeks ago. Paul talked about It's not even me doing it, right? I, I do the thing that I don't want to do. And so it's not me who's doing it. It's the sin that lives within me. This idea that we can come in and out of walking in the Spirit is untrue. The Bible says we are walking in the Spirit all of the time. No matter what is going on. This is a status that God has given us, that He has declared for us. We are always walking in the Spirit because God has declared us righteous. There's no condition for it. And this leads us back to the first verse, this statement. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, how can this be true? How can it be that in the midst of the most horrendous sins we commit, that we are seen by God with no condemnation, that we are seen in those moments as walking in the Spirit? You know the things you've done. I know the things I've done. And I think that doesn't seem possible. It's because we are in Christ Jesus. That's what verse 1 tells us. There is no condemnation. We are walking in the Spirit all of the time because it's not us. We are in Christ. When God looks down upon us, He doesn't see you. He doesn't see me and all the mess and the sinfulness. He just sees Jesus. We are hidden away in Him. And one day when we die and we get to heaven, the same thing happens. You think you are the one who's going to stand before God and try and make your case in order to get into heaven? That's no good. It's not going to happen. It's not going to work. But if you step before the Father and the Father sees His Son, which is what happens to anybody who believes, He doesn't see you. He sees Jesus and He says, I am, I am well pleased with all of the things that you have done. And it's not... We have this problem. It's like, oh, with the things I have done, it's not us, right? It's Christ. And this is so hard for us to understand and to grasp because we want to like grab onto something. What is it that I'm doing to get more spiritual? What is it that I'm doing to grow in my relationship? And these things, these, these statements, we hear them in the church, but these are not necessarily biblical ideas or biblical statements. The Father looks at you and He sees His Son. And that's why He's glorified. That's why He's happy. Not because of the good works. Not because of anything. And so, this is the message, I think, of what's here and what's going to come as we look at the rest of chapter 8. Is that God is looking at us and He is pleased with us. We are no longer condemned. We walk in the Spirit because we are in Christ. 
And it is the most comforting truth of the world because there is nothing that can overturn that. There is nothing that can take that away from you. I mean, what power in this world do you know of that can rip you out of the hands of God Almighty? It's not possible. No matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter what you think, if God has declared you righteous, you are righteous. You are not condemned because God has you firmly in his grip. Praise God. Hallelujah. What, a, what an encouraging statement. As Tyler said already, I, I don't think there's anything more that we can be thankful for this morning other than knowing that that is true. Let's pray together. Father God, we are in awe of your goodness. We hear these things. We hear that you have chosen to declare us righteous, that you have chosen to never condemn us again. And my instinct says, God, you, you must have missed it. You must not have been paying attention in some of the parts of the, the darkest parts of my life. But the reality is, and the truth is, God, you have seen it all. You have heard every thought that's gone through my mind. You have seen every dark and evil deed that I have ever done. But because of the goodness of your son, you declare us righteous. Father, we... It's a gift beyond measure. It's something that we will never fully understand. But we stand before you this morning in 100% thankfulness that you would even consider to do this for us. And you have done it through your son that you sent him here to die so that we could be saved. It is beyond remarkable it is more than any being in all of the universe has ever done for us father we are so grateful lord help us to be more thankful for this help us to embrace this more deeply and more fully that we would have more faith in this promise that we are no longer condemned God, that you hold our salvation in your hands. That it is, there's nothing we can do to yank it out. There's nothing anybody else in this world can do. Not even Satan himself can take that away because you hold us secure. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. So every week we come and we take communion. And it's a representation of this. It is a, uh, it reminds us what Christ had to endure on a physical level in order for us to be saved. You see, it wasn't enough for Christ to just come and do what we had talked about, right? Live this life, fulfill the law completely. But then he had to go to the cross and die and be a sacrifice. If he had come and lived a perfect life and, and saw the people and said, you guys aren't worth it. I'm leaving. And he ascends, right? Without the sacrifice, we're still we would still be in the state we were in before. But because Christ went to the cross and allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed, that he was a sacrifice for our sins, we know salvation. We are saved because 
of this physical thing that he went through. And the reminder that we have every, every week is that we would remember that A, this thing that we just talked about is true all of the time. We are not condemned. This sacrifice is still in effect. It is still covering and is still paying for the sins that we are committing even in this moment in this day, right? That is still true. It is still in effect and is still active. And so God says, look, this is a family meal. If you are believing, if you are a child of God, if you understand him as your father and you, you see Christ as your brother and you know your salvation is hid in Christ alone, he, he wants you to come. This is, this is for you. This is to remind you of that, to encourage you, right? To, rem, to remind you of, of the sacrifice that he has made. But if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Jesus, this is not your thing, right? You think, that's not me. I, I believe in God and I believe in heaven, but I'm trying to get there under my own steam, under my own good work. Once again, it, it's not going to work. So don't come here. In fact, right now, I implore you, kneel where you are, come to the altar, repent and believe. Confess your sins and, and, and God is, is faithful to forgive everyone who does this. So the table is set. It's, it's for the people of God. If that is you, come forward, grab a cup, grab a piece of bread and we'll give thanks and we'll partake together.